we discussed some difficult topics in this episode. So I just want to let you know, it might be triggering for sensitive listeners, but it's info that you'd want to have. Electric acid. In a sense, sexuality can be a garnish to life that is a wonderful uh, addition to that helps us experience uh, pleasure in a fulfilling way versus a terrible master, a master that can dominate lives and um, cause a hurricane type spiral to uh, destroy lives around the person that is consuming sexuality compulsively. Okay, it basically comes down to this. You have to forget everything your culture has told you about being a woman, and then you can begin your day. Hi, I'm Jill Sorensen, and you are listening to the new feminist podcast, The Place for Common Sense Feminism. Did you know that porn is as addictive to the brain as cocaine? The uncontrolled onslaught of internet porn today, it really affects all of us. 40 million U.S. adults visit porn sites regularly. That is 47% of all U.S. families who say porn use is an existing problem with someone in their home. And according to Manning's research, 56% of all divorce cases involve one partner having an obsessive interest in pornography. And let's be clear. 72% of that porn use is men. Porn today is mainly produced for men, and in its massive wake are millions of addicted men. They develop a compulsive disorder from a never-ending stream of young, new digital sex partners eager to please and develop false and unrealistic expectations of physical sex. That is, if their porn use hasn't already stopped them from being turned on by a real-life partner at all. What happens to the brain when you have a repeated intimate sexual experience with women on screen? What happens to the brain when it gets wired to use people instead of love? And with 90% of today's internet porn containing misogyny and abuse of women, what happens to our society? San Antonio-based neurosurgeon Dr. Donald Hilton is an internationally recognized expert on the neuroscience of pornography, and he is here today to break it down for us. Okay, so you are a neurosurgeon and an internationally recognized expert on the neuroscience of pornography. How did you start researching porn? I'm also a um, husband, father, grandfather, um, and as uh, having an investment in this world emotionally and through people I know and love, I have come to understand that this, this problem affects, uh, every family in some way, even families that aren't aware of that. And I think that it's incumbent upon all of us to, to take an active role in helping people understand exactly what this problem is and then what we should all be doing to try to help countermand the, uh, the powerful influences that are wor- carefully mm-hmm. working to control our children, our emerging adults, and uh, and and control mm-hmm. the narrative. Yeah, 
So important. So we've spoken to Gail Dines on this podcast and Lila Micklewaite. And, and, but tell us really what happens to the brain on pornography. I, let's step back a minute yeah. and, and consider uh, how the brain processes rewards. Uh, simplistically speaking, we have two brains. We have um, a thinking cognitive brain that's located kind of above our eyeballs, that frontal area. And then we have uh, a wanting brain, uh, a brain stem that really drives us to just consume things that will uh, ostensibly help us survive and help us thrive, like eating, reproduction. And, and so this drive part of our brain, this brain stem, um, produces, and this is simplistic, but there's a, a brain chemical called dopamine that, that really drives desire in our brain, wanting, and also focusing on things that help us survive and thrive. Um, when you're taking a test, for instance, dopamine focuses you on concentrating so that you can get the right answer so that you can have a successful career or whatever that would be, um, would be advantageous for you. And, um, eating a good meal, um, all those things are driven by dopamine. This frontal area of, of our brain modulates, um, pleasure. So you have a reward system of the brain. Uh, it's in the center central area of the brain. And so you have this, this brainstem driving desire saying, just do it. And then you have this frontal control area. Think of it as a braking system of sorts, kind of modulating, uh, saying, well, yeah, I would like to eat all day long, but if I do, I'll be unhealthy. So maybe I'd, I better, you know, modulate how much I eat and what, what I actually eat. Similarly with sexuality, it's very pleasurable, but what about modulating it? Is there illegal sexuality or harmful sexuality, exploitive sexuality? Um, and then how does our frontal control area modulate how sexuality is played out in our own lives? Um, and so in a sense, the brain, um, has a, a part that is driving it just to experience pleasure. Another part that is saying, well, let's contextualize the pleasure. What will it do? Uh, how can we have this pleasure be advantageous for us? In a sense, sexuality can be a garnish to life that is a, a wonderful uh, addition to that helps us experience uh, pleasure in a fulfilling way versus a terrible master, a master that can dominate lives and um, cause a hurricane type spiral to uh, destroy lives around the person that is consuming sexuality compulsively. Mm -hmm. So in your seminars, you have referenced, I think, Cambridge University research, where they found that internet porn is as addictive as cocaine. Um, how does the addiction template of pornography look compared to a drug addiction? Is, is there a difference or can you share about that? So addiction, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, which is composed of medical doctors um, that, that study addiction, and they're very interested not only in the behavioral aspects of addiction, but in the brain changes that occur with addiction. And, and when I say addiction, I mean heroin, uh, alcohol, things that anyone would consider to be an addictive substance. 
Um, and in studying this, they have come to the, the realization that behavioral addictions can also have similar uh, changes that occur in the brain. And of course, behaviorally, there are similarities between behavioral addictions and drug addictions. There's differences as well, but there's similarities, certainly. In other words, uh, heroin, I think everyone would agree, can cause a terrible addiction that can threaten a person's life. Uh, food can cause a, a terrible addiction that can threaten a person's life as well with morbid obesity, hypertension, strokes, diabetes, etc. Sexuality can cause a behavioral addiction as well. And many have argued for a, um, a formal diagnosis of sex as an addiction. Now, proponents of of internet pornography, and, and it's really a cabal. There's there's yeah. the power companies that just like the tobacco companies did not want tobacco to be labeled addictive, right? Mm -hmm. well, well, similarly, there are powerful uh, interests financially that do not want pornography to uh, to be labeled an addictive product. Of course, that makes sense, liability wise, and, and in other ways. Um, and so there's a lot of money and, and interest going into to fighting that. Again, looking back at the tobacco wars, particularly in the 60s, and even now, um, there are PhDs and scientists who downplay the risks of tobacco and essentially speak for the tobacco companies. Similarly, there are pro-porn academics and apologists with PhDs mm -hmm. and science degrees that try to downplay the risks of internet pornography uh, to adults and even to children. So we shouldn't be surprised, of course, uh, anytime there's a cabal of interests that are protecting powerful uh, corporations. And, and we certainly see that today. Nevertheless, there are, uh, there are co really a, a collection. Uh, there are metabolic studies. There are behavioral structural studies that all point to brain changes with internet pornography, compulsive use, what I would call addictive use and what many others call addictive mm -hmm. use. Many similarities between that and drug addiction as well. And so I, I think that when you hear people try to downplay that, uh, virtually all of those people have interests um, related to, to the pornography industry. I found, this was really interesting. A few years ago, there was an article in the New York Times about a study that had been published regarding red meat. So the study comes out and says, guess what, guys? Red meat's really harmless. After all, mm -hmm. you can eat all you want. No problem. No stroke issues. No, um, you know, no, no, no issues. Mm -hmm. And so they started looking at the authors and they found out that lo and behold, the authors had been funded by a company that had also funded um, research for interest with the sugar industry and the meat oh, industry. Yeah. So behind the scenes, it looks like the meat industry and the sugar industry were funding these scientists to produce research that said it's not so bad after exactly. all. Well, and when the New York Times asked these authors that had published the study about it, the authors were compelled to actually discuss their personal use of red meat in the New York Times. They said, well, okay, 
for full disclosure, we feel we need to say, and some of the authors said, yes, I eat red meat. What did, I, I don't eat that much, but virtually all of them did. I wonder if it's time to ask those that are publishing articles that say internet pornography is not addictive or harmful to fully disclose their personal current use of pornography. You know, if, if the New York Times asks that of, of people publishing on meat, then uh, why not pornography? Well, e exactly. I, you know, it's funny. I was just thinking about that this morning, reading some articles even here in Sweden, and, and I, it, which was very pro-porn. And, and I'm like, who, who really wrote this? What do they have invested in this? Yeah. So how can you tell if a person or how can a person tell if they're addicted to porn? Well, let me first talk about the word addiction because uh, pro-porn apologists are going to say that porn can't be addictive. Uh, only drugs can be addictive. So let's, let's go back and, and just break the word addiction down briefly. Um, well, number one, there are two kinds of, there are two types of addiction, uh, substance addictions, which really few people can test alcohol and heroin are addictive. Cocaine is addictive. Even though there are differences in those physical addictions and in how they affect the brain, they're still addictive. What about behavioral addictions? Even those who say pornography cannot be addictive agree if they accept the DSM-5, which they do, that there is a behavioral addiction. It's called gambling. It is accepted in the DSM-5 as a behavioral addiction. So ridiculously, those that say internet porn is not addictive, nor can it be, have no problem swallowing whole the fact that gambling is an addiction. They'll say, well, yeah, online poker, no problem. Online porn, not an addiction. They'll, they'll say that with a straight face, believe it or not. So let's go back and look at how that happened, how that inconsistency occurs. Well, number one, you have powerful interests, just like the tobacco company argues that tobacco can't be addictive. Uh, they don't want the liability, of course, powerful financial interests making billions of dollars from pornography argue that porn is not harmful or addictive because it's a financial interest for them. If we look back at the DSM-4, gambling became a, was, was classified as an impulse control disorder in the DSM-4. In the mm -hmm. DSM-5, it was moved to a behavioral addiction. Now, in the ICD-11, which is internationally used for medical and psychiatric diagnoses, the uh, compulsive sexual behavior, including compulsive internet pornography use, was classified as an impulse control disorder, just as gambling was in the DSM-4. And there are many arguing for compulsive sexual uh, disorder to be made a behavioral addiction in the DSM-12, or sorry, the ICD-12. I think that will happen. I think there's, there's uh, uh, substantial evidence uh, to, to, um, to, to prove that point. Um, it's just that there are, are pro-pornography interests fighting that tooth and nail, as you might well imagine. So that's kind of the addiction word, why the addiction word is so contested with sexuality. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as addiction, I think anyone could ask themselves, let's say, let's take alcohol. Well, is alcohol just a garnish that a person might have a red wine after they uh, eat dinner two or three times a week, maybe? And, and is that an addiction? Of course not. Um, what about someone that's drinking hard gin before breakfast every day 
midday, evening, uh, losing, missing work, uh, maybe had a few DUIs and then uh, has a wreck because of alcohol, has uh, lost several relationships in their life. I think most people would agree that's probably an addiction. Um, where's the line? At what point does a sip of red wine after, uh, after their uh, evening meal turn into an addiction? Well, in a behavioral addiction, it's really tricky to, to know where that line is. A food addiction, which potato chip crosses the line between enjoying a potato chip and between a food addiction where the person is morbidly obese with hypertension, diabetes, et cetera. So with, with sexuality, it's really a blurry line. You know, sexuality is a wonderful garnish to life. At what point does enjoyable sexuality become something that's so dominating that it harms that person's entire life and other people. So all of those lines are lines that are difficult to, to kind of sort out. And really, if a person is trying to sort that in individually, they will likely need a good and competent therapist to help work through those questions. But simple questions like, is this dominating my life? Uh, can I enjoy other parts of life? Uh, do, does my compulsion in sexuality uh, prevent me from realizing who I am? Does this uh, take up every waking moment of my life, dominate everything I want, uh, affect the relationships around me negatively? And I try to change, but I can't stop. I can't change it. I can't stop on my own and change the direction of my life. It seems to have taken over the direction of my life. And there seems to be something else driving that. Um, those are questions that a person then would say, Hmm, maybe there's an addictive component to this sexuality that I need to discuss. Um, is pornography something the person's getting up and watching 24 seven or just enough that it's damaging their life. I would argue that pornography is so toxic, uh, particularly pornography on the internet today, um, that there's. It, it bears little resemblance to what I would call healthy sexuality. Um, so that's, that kind of answers, I think, from my perspective, the question of how would a person address that? And, and so they would ask themselves those kind of, how is sexuality dominating my life? And then perhaps seek professional help to sort out, you know, how that might fit into their, their personal life. Now, getting into the question of, of, what about pornography? Is it quote wrong? Well, let's talk about internet pornography today and what, and, and if you've talked to Gail Dines, then she's been, I think uh, she hasn't been, uh, I, I reticent about discussing this in, in a, in a straightforward way. Uh, that's Gail does a great job of that. Thank goodness. We have people like Gail to do that. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to talk a little bit about that because, um, the question then is what, what are people watching today? If people go on to say Pornhub or you porn or browsers or any of the, the websites that people go watch today from pornography, what are they seeing? And is it all just, Hey, we're consenting adults. Well, most scenes and, and what I'll do is I'll speak frankly, but no slang. I don't, I don't do slangs myself. I'm a medical doctor. Uh, so I use medical terminology just for audience in terms of where I'm coming from, what they'll hear. And, and I tend to refer to studies that have been done on this in the peer reviewed literature. So 
most people then, if, and, and a lot of this has been quantified by people like Gail Dines, uh, like uh, Chen Sung New, at uh, NYU, um, Anna Bridges, and, and many others have quantified what is being viewed, what, what is actually being consumed. So typically, the sexuality is compulsive. There was an article by uh, Chen Sun at NYU, New York University, that described that most sexual scenes that millennials and pretty much everyone, even a 12-year-old that views pornography now, will view the male not participating in a regular intercourse type experience, but masturbating then and ejaculating on the woman's face in a mammalian marking behavior. The paper's called, it was published in, I think, Violence Against Women, the journal, and it was called A Naked Aggression. Now, then Dr. Sun interviewed these young men and um, found that they knew that it was coercive and they knew that the woman actually didn't want this. This wasn't sex positive for her. It wasn't enjoyable for her sexually. How, how, would, it be, how would it be? And yet they did it anyway. They knowingly knew, uh, knowingly perpetrated these behaviors upon the, these, these young women, knowing that it was serving them. And they also, number two, admitted that they learned this behavior specifically from pornography. And several content analysis papers, some by Gale and others, have documented that this is one of the most common conclusions to most porn clips today is the male ejaculating on the woman's face. So I think it's important to understand that this is a learned behavior. It's really a mammalian marking behavior, similar to males marking their territory out in the wild, the male animals. And so it's being perpetrated on, on young women. There was another article in the British Medical Journal on coercive anal sex and how the young, these particular young women did not really want this. And the young men were perpetrating it and they agreed that they, that the young, they understood that the young women did not want the behavior. They did not want to have this happen to them. And yet the young men did it anyway. So in the article, the, the, uh, in the summary to the article, the author said that it was a knowing coercion by the young men and significantly that it was scripted by pornography. So we have this pornography essentially teaching young, young men to coerce young women to do something they really don't want to do. And it's really writing these powerful sexual scripts into their cognitive templates in a very deep level and fusing that with a, a, a very powerful pleasure um, reward with, uh, with essentially a, a deep dive into the memory. So this is really embedded in their memory templates. And it writes their sexual scripts in a very deep, um, deep way. And so coercion becomes part of their sexuality. And the third thing that we see is choking. And this is increasing now. The young men somehow feel they have to put their hands on the young women's neck. As a neurosurgeon, I've operated on uh, necks for many years, either fractured spines or going approaches through the front of the neck. And I've, uh, in training, we did a lot of uh, carotid end arterectomies. I've operated on the carotid artery many times. So the carotid arteries, the big arteries in the front of your neck, when you feel the pulse in your neck, which if you do so, do so very gently, you don't want to push hard on the carotid arteries. Uh, you can precipitate uh, a vagal reaction and uh, actually um, lose consciousness by pushing on the carotid arteries. They're supplying your brain with blood. At no point is it ever permissible or in any way safe for anyone to touch someone's neck 
uh, at all. I mean, uh, touch the skin lightly, but not choke, put any pressure on the front of the neck. So anyone that tries to say that choking in a, in a bondage type sexuality can be mutually agreeable is, is completely wrong there. It's just a dangerous behavior. And you have, uh, you can have neuro- neurologic damage from, you know, from issues related to a, a carotid dissection where you get a stroke from touching the end, uh, from pressing on the neck to choking someone. Um, and, uh, and that this is happening. We hear of people, uh, well, it got out of hand. I didn't mean to hurt them, you know? Uh, and you so know, there, there's a website in Europe for women who have been killed during sex from extreme choking. Yeah. And, and it's just, it's crazy to me because as I say, as and a they neuro- blame the porn, they blame, oh, we were just testing out stuff in the porn yeah. videos. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm just saying as a, as a medical doctor who operates, I did one yesterday. I, I go through the front of the neck. I have to gently move the carotid artery aside as I go through and work on the spinal cord. So I'm touching mm-hmm. carotid arteries frequently, several times a week. And I do so very carefully with an instrument, but to go grab someone's carotid artery with your hand and, and, is, is absolute insanity and, and in no way is it defensible. And so this, uh, for people to try to justify this as well, it was part of sex is completely indefensible. So let me ask you, what happens to someone's brain when you're constantly watching the, and having an intimate sexual relationship with this kind of violence towards women? What, what really happens to the brain? Well, what happens is um, we contextualize our pleasure. We color and flavor our pleasure with context. So in other words, if, um, if we're going to eat a nice meal, um, let's say picture your favorite restaurant and your favorite meal. And let's say it's with someone that's very special to you, whoever that is, you know, whatever. And so you and that person go and there's candlelight and, and you just have a great evening together. And you enjoy this food and it, it, they, they bring it to you in courses with a great dessert. And it's like just a great uh, human experience. The context of it, the conversation, uh, the food, the flavors, the, the timing, it's not rushed. And so it's just a great experience. And it, the whole thing is just this human, pleasurable human experience. Well, you can get the same calories by taking all of that expensive food, putting it in a big blender, blending it up and just you know, swallowing yeah. it in about 30 seconds. It's gone. Same things happened with the calories, but it's a totally different perspective and experience. So sexuality is very much the same. It's a very powerful pleasure reward, however, though. So when a person um, experiences sexuality, the context in which they experience it is written deeply into their pleasure templates. And they don't, the brain does not forget that. There was an experiment that was done many years ago, and, and I think this illustrates it perfectly. So cadaverine is a chemical that smells really, really bad. In fact, it's what makes dead things stink. It's called cadaverine. Now, even rats hate the smell of cadaverine, believe it or not. As much as rats like to eat smelly things, they hate cadaverine. So these scientists did an experiment where they took a male rat and put the male rat in a cage and they put a stick, a piece of wood soaked with cadaverine in the cage with the male rat. 
the male rat smelled the cadaverine, ran to the other side of the cage, tried to get out, which is what any normal male rat would do. They did that as a control. Next part of the experiment. They take a female rat, sexually receptive female rat, put the female rat into the cage. The male rat immediately goes and mates the female rat. Eggs expected. Third part of the experiment. They put the same female rat into the cage, but first they soaked her fur with cadaverine. Then they put her in the cage. Now the male rat runs over, smell, and tries to get away at first, repulsed by the cadaverine. But eventually, the male sexual drive overcomes it, and the male, mat, male rat mates with the female rat. Last part of the experiment, and, and, and that ke- they, they keep doing that, and every time the male rat is presented with a female rat, she's been soaked in cadaverine, and finally, he smells the cadaverine, and he knows the female rat's there, and he doesn't even hesitate. Uh-huh. And the last, the last part of the experiment is they put the, the male rat into the cage, no rat, no female, and they put the same piece of wood back into the cage. Now the male rat runs to the wood and starts to chew the wood. So really what pornography, it's cadaverine sex. And our brains are scripted to conditionally accept something that is not naturally appetitive. So now males are being scripted to like coercion. Instead of of sexuality being something that they know they're sharing with a human who's enjoying something with them, they enjoy coercing. It's it's so, and now with with porn being pretty much the new sex ed for for adolescents, I mean, which is, it's it's a horror show. I mean, it's changing the entire sexuality of 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 a whole generation. What uh, now? Yeah, I um, uh, I think you mentioned uh, in in one of your seminars I listened to that perhaps twenty percent of young men ages sixteen to twenty four might be addicted. Um, why in particular is porn so dangerous for adolescents? It's novel. If you think about it, it's the first thing they've seen. It's their introduction to sexuality. So. Sex is porn to them. They, they know nothing else. Whereas, you know, in generations past, a 12-year-old young, you know, a young, a young teenager, uh, 12-year-old girl and boy uh, might enjoy just a simple dance together. Or he might be intrigued by just, you know, touching her hand. Now that's long gone. And porn has scripted them to want coercion. And well, uh, girls just like to be choked and coerced, and that's what we're supposed to do because porn has taught us well. Uh, so millions of women around the world probably have heard their partner play down their porn use or excuses at normal. What are the harmful effects of someone just looking a little bit, and does that affect the brain? brain? So as I've said, um, pornography is, uh, as, as presented on the internet today is coercive, it's toxic. Um, and so I think it's like heroin. You could say, well, some 
narcotics like fentanyl or Norco do have a medical use. If prescribed by a physician, they can actually help humans if they use it properly. After surgery, for instance, you know, narcotics can be helpful, carefully used and monitored by a physician. Whereas some narc, some uh, opioids like, like heroin, for instance, have no medical use. It's so, it's so addictive um, and it really has no good, safe medical use. Cocaine in humans doesn't have a safe threshold. You start using it, it's going to become toxic. And I believe pornography as presented currently on the internet today is a toxic form of sexuality. It's basically mechanized coercion. It just, it, it's a stifling sameness. It's just this endless stream of coercion uh, and abuse. And it's scripting young men to like it and young women to perform it because they think that's what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. So compulsive sexual disorder is a mental health disorder. Do you think it should be classified as a drug? Well, I think it should be classified as a behavioral addiction. A drug, specifically a drug, as a medical professional myself, I think there's a line there that we keep separate. A drug is something that you take into your body. Um, it has the potential to kill you very quickly. Uh, heroin, for instance. You overdose on heroin, you're going to die really quick. It's going to make you quit breathing. Overdose on cocaine, it's going to put your, really raise your blood pressure uh, quickly. You could have a stroke, a heart attack. Many do. So, and alcohol, overdose on alcohol uh, can, can also kill you. So I do think we need to at least maintain, there is a difference between drug addiction and behavioral addictions. Having said that, there are many similarities. And so both can consume your life. Both can destroy your life. Both, you need professional help to gain control of your life again after you've become addicted to either a substance or to a behavior. So there are many similarities, both with the behavioral characteristics of the disorders and with the brain changes that happen. Very similar brain changes happen with drug addictions. And we also see those with behavioral addictions. And there have been brain changes in pornography that we see that are similar to those seen in drug addiction. A study done in Germany at the Max Planck Institute, study out of Cambridge University in England and others. Mm -hmm. So what do you do or how do you help someone if you have a partner struggling with porn abuse? How do you, what do you do? How do you help them? I think honesty uh, has to, 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 to start somewhere. And so I think if the person, if it's a relationship that is worth saving, um, I think at some point, then there has to be honesty. There simply has to be a willingness to sit down and confront honest, you know, an, an honest discussion of what's happening, what's being watched, how often, why this troubles the person that is troubled, the, the other person in the relationship. Um, and then are they willing to get help? Are they willing to see a professional therapist, uh, go to a group therapy, a 12 step or some other type of group that have, that basically consists of other people who have walked their path and who, uh, at least, uh, some in the group will have a measure of recovery and they can offer that person hope. So I think all of those are things the person can do, but if a, 
Some people don't want help, whether it is a drug addiction or a behavioral addiction like pornography or sex. And if they're addicted uh, to either one and they don't want help, it's going to be impossible to help them until they reach a point that they really want to help themselves. They have to be ready. Um, are there places you can find help? I mean, just thinking if someone's listening to this and at what places, where can you go to find uh, help? Like, are there organizations? Yeah, sure. There's, there's, um, well, for a 12 step group, that's everywhere in the world. There's a group called SA sexaholics anonymous, and it's an AA type group and it's free in the person and they're in pretty, pretty much every city anywhere in the world. And so there you're going to find a person that a group of people, it's free. It's like, just like AA, you'll have some people that have long-term recovery. Others are, are, have just walked into the door seeking help. Then there's therapists, um, in the United States, for instance, CSAT certified sexual addiction therapists, um, they have special training in, um, in helping people with sexual addiction. I would also uh, advise people to be careful just because someone is a treats sexual issues doesn't mean they even believe that sexual addiction exists. There are organizations with some sexologists who deny that pornography is addictive, deny pornography can even be harmful and say, really the only problem with pornography is that your partner isn't accepting everything that you want to have happen with pornography. They just need to loosen up. And so there are some sexologists who really are nothing more than fronts for the porn industry. And so be careful in selecting. That's why a CSAT is a group that the certified sexual addiction therapists agree that sexuality can be compulsive and can be addictive and can be harmful. And that's the first thing is mm -hmm. choose the therapist carefully. Yeah. I mean, they're, the porn industry is like the tobacco industry. I, I don't, um, we actually, with my organization, I have an organization called Knockout Abuse Against Women. We ran the protest outside of Pornhub every Friday for nine months during the pandemic. Awesome. And that's how we got involved with Gail and uh, Lila Micklewaite and, and, and everyone. So it was, I mean, literally, we had, I mean, I'm just thinking of the, the, the violence perpetrated in the videos. I think we found there were 157,000 videos of waterboarding and, you know, 76,000 videos of extreme choking. I mean, it's, it's insane, the violence perpetrated. And, and, and for me personally, I don't understand how we cannot draw, how this cannot affect uh, the way we treat women, you know, or, or increase violence against women there, there, you know, there's, there's not enough research on that, but even just listening to you, it's, it's, uh, it's a given. It's the given. And I, I thank you so much for doing what you did. Honestly, I saw that was going on and Lila had told me about it too. And I just, if I'd lived up in Montreal, I'd have been right out there with you because oh, so yeah. great. And, and I just noted today that Another lawsuit was filed against MindGeek, um, $800 million suit from this firm in New York. Oh, yeah. uh, there's, there's multiple suits coming. And this, of course, is the answer. The, uh, you know, people talk about litigation, but that's the answer is litigation. More litigation, more litigation. Certainly, uh, sadly, sadly, there are so many victims um, as these people that are in the videos that are suing finally. And there are so many others. And we just need to get the word out 
to them and to plaintiff attorneys. You know, plaintiff attorneys need to be paid, to right? And so say, hey, yeah. there's a lot of money in this for you. You know, you guys win. So it works yeah. both ways. The plaintiff firms will have motivation to sue these wealthy companies that are hurting people. And there's plenty of victims that would have. So I think we need to keep Keep the um, word out. Sue these people. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's uh, it's uh, it's actually it, like I like I say to Lila all the time. You you all you just have to unveil them because the the horror show is there. You don't have to do anything but yeah. unveil what's going on and the truth and what's happening. So right. You had a, a great statement that I heard in one of your seminars, and it was, um, "I see humans as a cooperative thing with empathy and compassion." I see us helping each other, not using each other. Our brain was designed not to use, but to love. And I'm wondering what happens to the brain when it's programmed to use others sexually? Well, what happens is um, this frontal lobe, this, this part uh, of our brain up over our eyes, it, it allows us to have more executive control, thought, function. And there's been a couple of studies that have shown that people that are uh, compulsively using pornography to the point where it's become a severe problem in their life, a couple of several studies have shown that the connection between that executive control area of the brain and the reward area is, is, is impaired. There is what's called a disconnection in front, what is called disconnection and frontal connectivity, impairment in that connectivity. And so it, the the signal isn't isn't really reaching um, the areas of the brain that it should to try to help the person modulate their sexuality. So what happens is instead of being a human being where we are more than just an amoeba, you know, an amoeba crawls through the water to eat whatever it is it wants to eat. It doesn't think about it. Um, most lower level animals don't have a lot of volitional thought. They just do and act. We become like that. We essentially disconnect our frontal lobes. And here we have these, these executive control areas that can not only judge things, but can also flavor and color our sexuality with emotion, with love, with meaning. That all is disconnected. And we essentially become brainstems. We become lizards uh, that are just out to, you know, simply experience a sensation for a while and then move on. Yeah. And, and what, a, what a sad thing. Uh, to think that we have this potential to experience life at a much higher level, at a much higher level of self-actualization and of fulfillment and of enjoyment uh, in many levels in, in an emotional, uh, physical interplay of humanity that is so moving and so wonderful. This is what sexuality has the promise of being versus uh, a kind of a, a, a one-time lizard experience devoid of any kind of meaning or, or, or emotion. And it, it's sad that, that billions of young people are being sold this lie by powerful corporations and it's hijacking their lives and depriving them of what could be a much richer experience as humans. That's extremely well said. I could not agree with you more. Anyway, I thank you so much for coming on uh, and speaking about this. And um, this is a, a topic that I find to be the most urgent topic around today because it it's affects particularly the young kids in such an extreme way. 
thank you so much for what you're doing and keep me posted on all this stuff that you're doing with oh yeah <laughs> anything i can do to help out let me know i'm with you. oh yeah right, okay? you, you come to la and come and protest with us keep me, keep me, keep me I, I really i'm with you okay i'd, I'd love to. all right that's awesome yeah Thank you so much for what you're doing. And uh, again, thank you for being on the show. Hopefully we can get you back on again. All right, Jill. Great to talk to you. Take care. If you like this episode, make sure to share it with your friends. For info and links on our guests, go to our website, thenewfeminist.net, and make sure to subscribe. We always love to hear from you. If you have someone you think we should speak to, let us know. And make sure to follow on Instagram at The New Feminist Official. We'll be back in two weeks with a new podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Jill Sorensen. Thanks for listening. Our producers are Sienna Jackson and Jill Sorensen. Our executive producers are Mark Netter and Peter Rafelson. Our editor is Lucy Baker Swinburne. Original music by Richard Baskin. Until our next episode, thank you for listening. You've been listening to The New Feminist, brought to you by Electrocast Media. Electric acid.